Okay, episode number four. The guest today is Matt McDonald of Atlanta Track Club Elite. I recently sat down with Matt at his research facility at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. He's a chemical engineer doing full-time research there. Uh, He just finished his PhD, but he's also an elite marathoner. He finished 10th at the U.S. Olympic Trials in the marathon this past February. Uh, So before I play back our conversation, uh, let me give just a little background since the recording kind of starts mid-conversation. Matt is from Clinton, New Jersey. He went to Princeton University and graduated, I believe, in 2015. Uh, Right after that, he moved to Atlanta to work on his Ph.D., Um, And he also started running for the Atlanta Track Club. So obviously we talked a lot about marathon training, but we also got really deep into marathon nutrition and physiology, which I really enjoyed. And then we wrapped up talking about the events he's got coming up later this year, which will be fun to watch out for. Anyways, here is my conversation with Matt McDonald. You ran at Princeton, right? Correct, yep. Under uh, two coaches, actually. My first year was uh, Coach Dolan, and then my uh, sophomore, junior, senior years were Jason Vigilante. Okay. Um, who was definitely a very interesting coach, and I, I definitely liked him, but he was a bit of a polarizing character. How so? Uh, he was just very um, crude, isn't the right word, but harsh and uh, just kind of base with us. Um, some of the guys on the team didn't like it so much, um, but I think it, it really worked to motivate me. Um, in my experience, being yelled at doesn't make me curl up into a ball and just not want to run fast. It, it helps me when I'm out on the course and I have my coach screaming obscene things at me to try and get me to pick up the pace. Yeah. Did you see the Last Dance documentary? No. Any of it? Okay. I, I need to watch it. Well, anyways, a big takeaway a lot of people seem to have in the general public was like wow michael jordan was kind of a jerk he was so hard on his mm-hmm. teammates and i'm like now i was kind of like you know i would probably want that if i was you know at that caliber and trying to achieve something really great you probably n- need a certain amount of that hard edge right oh for sure anger is definitely a great motivator um fear is not a great motivator right so i had teammates that were more afraid of of coach when he got like that and it does cause some people to to curl up but um i think like anger and just raw emotion can really push you to to run fast or play hard yeah so when did you decide that you wanted to run marathons um i think it was always in the cards for me in high school my best event was the two mile on the track and the 5k and cross country in college it was immediately the 10k and then post collegiately um, you know, it took a year to work up to doing my first half marathon, um, but it just went so much better than all the 10Ks I ran that year. I was like, well, let's just keep pushing it farther and farther. And, uh, you know, a year after that, I think I did a, my first marathon and it went decently well. I qualified for the trials on my first try, just barely, but um, at the time I was proud of that and you know, stuck with it since. When you said your first half felt you said it felt better than the 10Ks. Is that how you said it? I couldn't yeah. remember. But uh, did you mean the intensity was a little lower and that was more comfortable for mm-hmm. a longer time? 
is or exactly yeah um the types of pain that come with the faster stuff versus the longer drawn out marathon half marathon races uh at least for me they're very different and i don't do as well handling that sharper speed pain but uh if you just drag it out over an hour and a half um i think i can handle it much better yeah it's funny how some people seem to just be built differently and can take that different type of pain as opposed to like a 800, 1500 meter person mm-hmm. can just jack their heart rate way up for a really short amount of time and just take that different kind of pain. Funny how different people fall just naturally on the yeah, different parts totally. of the spectrum. Um, I live with an 800 meter runner or 800 mile and he can close so hard and it looks so painful as he's doing it. You see every muscle tense and he's rigging really bad. And I just know that that is the worst feeling in the world for me. But for him, um, he can, you know, do it every time and drive himself to that point and, and make it work and kick people down. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm jealous of that. <laughs> so when you are doing a half or a full marathon, what what's like the first thing to kind of start to wear on you like is it something muscular or a more general type of fatigue like what where, where's your weakest link i guess yeah when you're running a marathon um it feels so good for so long right for 90 minutes or so it's like oh i'm just out here for a run and during that part it's easy to stay chipper and be in the race and then things start to fall apart and for me what usually happens first is i have some sort of muscle twitch or twinge um in my first marathon it was my calves one of them just went at like mile 19 and it was just one little twinge and then you know a couple miles later both of them started doing it and it was getting more and more often and that's really hard to run on um at the olympic trials this february it was actually my arm Uh, (laughs) it was like mile 20 i was climbing up peach tree here and uh i felt my my bicep twitch and i was like oh no because you know what that means And even though it doesn't hurt and it doesn't affect your running, it's the mental aspect of, uh uh-oh, it's starting. And, you know, sure enough, a couple miles later, my legs are are cramping. And um, then, you know, it's just you have to be tough for three or four miles. So that type of muscle twinge or cramp you start subtly feeling around that part of the race? Yep. How much of that do you think is um, running out of glycogen versus just... Or something else other yeah. than glycogen depletion. Yeah, so I think with the uh, bottles that we take on the course today, with the, the Martin and UCAN and all these other uh, supplements that you're, you're drinking while running, glycogen depletion isn't as big an issue as I have felt on long runs, right? If we do a 23-mile long run with no fuel, I do feel that fatigue of glycogen depletion and just being out of energy. But in a marathon, I mean, we take in so many carbs. It's almost like you're taking in as many calories as you're burning. Um, Not quite, but (laughs) close. Uh, And I really think the cramps are just neuromuscular fatigue. Um, I've, you know, I'm a chemical engineer, biological engineer by training. I have a doctorate now. (laughs) Um, And everyone says it's dehydration. And I've tried to comb through the literature Um, And there's very little scientific evidence that dehydration can really lead to those sort of muscle cramps. Um, You know, people cite electrolyte imbalances, and even I am tempted to believe, like, oh, if I just take a little more salt 
in my, my bottles next time around that won't happen. But um, it really seems like it's just a, a fatigue issue where at the cellular level, there are organelles that sense tension and pressure and things like that. And after two hours of being stretched to their max, they just start to fail. And then nerves fire that aren't supposed to fire at that exact moment. And soon the, the well-tuned machine isn't really uh, firing properly. And so those are what is causing the cramps. Um, and there, I mean, you can argue that dehydration does contribute to it um but it really just seems to be just pure fatigue right you mentioned um not using fuel during long runs training Mm -hmm. runs how often do you do long runs with no you know fuel along the way versus practicing the fuel while you're running um we generally practice fueling during long tempos and long hard efforts like uh, progression runs for a regular long run um typically won't won't get anything uh monday i did 20 miles around atlanta um didn't stop for any any water or anything now in the heat of the summer you kind of just need water and so we'll practice just taking some water um but that's just because even if you start before the sun is up it's 75 and humid um, and you just sweat a lot. Yeah. But now that it's cooled down to 65 and humid, uh, it's not as necessary. So it's really more practicing the feeling of having it in your stomach right. than actually getting the fuel to make your workout better. So on a long, easier run with no fuel, um, is it just a literally long, steady, easy run? Or like what at, in terms of percentage of marathon pace? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it totally depends. Uh, coach would say that they can be pretty easy the whole time for those longer runs that aren't meant to be a workout. Um, but for me, every time I'm going you know, over 15 miles, it's just a personal preference. I like to do at least a bit of a progression run. Um, you know, If we're not getting down to marathon pace, then getting down to like 5.30 to 5.45 pace. Um, but that's just you know, it feels good. And when you're strong and in shape, just doing that doesn't take a ton out of you. And it's, yeah. it's fun. Right. So on the longer tempos where you're going to practice ingesting fuel, mm-hmm. do any of those ever get up into like the upper teens or 20 mile range total? Um, so we'll do progression runs that get up to like 22 miles and then it'll be the first 10 easy. And then over the next, you know, 10 to 12 working down to half marathon pace. Um, as far as really long tempos, we'll usually break them up a little. So uh, we'll do a 10-mile tempo every now and again. But um, some of our bigger workouts are like, uh, we, we call it the two-hour run. It's It takes two hours total, but there's 15 minutes of rest in there. Um, so it's, uh, I believe it's five minutes of just, uh, you know, jogging into a half marathon pace. And then we'll do 45 minutes at half marathon pace. 10-minute jog, and then an hour at marathon pace. And so um, that's, a, that's a big volume day. Um, and yeah. it definitely helps to have some fuel during that run because, you know, over the course of two hours at marathon pace, basically, you're covering, uh, you know, 22 miles, 23 miles. Um, <laughs> so you start with the half, you start faster and get, and then yeah. walk into a slower marathon yep. 
afterwards. Yeah. That's interesting. Most of our workouts progress from slower to faster, but uh, the idea of this like two-hour run is to really beat up your legs first and then practice marathon right. pace Which for a long time. simulates an yeah. actual marathon. Exactly. So speaking of beating up your legs, I wanted to ask you about the trials course. So we're yeah. here in Atlanta. The trials were in Atlanta this mm-hmm. past February. Um, I assume you guys were able to train on the course or parts of it, you know, on the hills. How big of a factor do you think the hills were generally for most mm-hmm. people? And then also, how much of an advantage do you think it was being able to train on the course so often? Yeah, uh, the trials course was not an easy course. Um, it had more elevation change than Boston, um, and it wasn't net downhill. <laughs> so uh, that was definitely a big factor in our training. Um, now, I usually touch a part of the course almost every single day. I just finished up my double half an hour ago, and I ran about a mile of the course um, just because it's in the heart of Atlanta and that's where I do a lot of my training. But as far as like doing workouts on the course and stuff, we actually didn't get to do a ton of that. Um, there's just a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic lights, and it's really oh, hard to okay. get a continuous effort in on the course. Um, once or twice, we actually had a police escort for practice, which was kind of cool. Uh, it turns out that if you're friendly with the police and you're, <laughs> You know, you have a good rapport with them, like Atlanta Track Club does, because they do so many of our events. You can hire some of them to escort you through traffic. And, um, yeah, that was cool, having a a little motorcade for us. But we only did that twice. Um, So it sounds like living here wasn't necessarily much of a competitive advantage versus anybody else. Everybody knew what the course was going to be and can run on similar hills and whatnot, so... Yeah, I think everyone can get similar hill training in. Uh, I will say, just on easy runs, I I touched every piece of the course multiple times, and come race day, I knew that course like the back of my hand. So I knew where I was at each moment, and I knew what was coming. And, uh, you know, on the first lap, I'm sure some of my competitors didn't know that. But then, uh, you know, two laps later, they had probably memorized all those hills because they can hurt you pretty bad. So let's back up here a second and talk about kind of your general progression since um, I'm looking at November 2016 and you have a half marathon, uh, 105.57. Yep, that was in Indianapolis, the monumental half. And was that your first half? That was my first half, yep. And you run, you ran a couple more halves. And um, they didn't really get much faster. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was noticing is... Um, yep. About a year later or so, you ran your first marathon, 218.34. Yep. And then, okay, fast forward, you know, two years, you're down to two in the 211s at Chicago, but your half PR has only dropped, like, less than a minute or so. So, what's going on there? So, two things. One, well, maybe even more than two things, to be honest. The first thing I'll say is my half PR should be much faster but at the Arizona Rock and Roll Half Marathon this January, they misplaced one of the cones at the turnaround point on the course. And so uh, the course was about 45 seconds fast, which made my 61.45, uh, which should have been a 62.30, not count for anything. Um, luckily, oh. they still honored the prize money, so I shouldn't say it didn't count <laughs> for anything. Uh, but that was a bit of a letdown, so <laughs> it should be faster. Um, the second thing is, uh, 
every half marathon we do is usually about a month before a major marathon, so it's it's a tune-up race. Um, and in the past, we haven't let up on the mileage much or anything um, before a half marathon, so I've actually got another half marathon coming up uh, October 28th, and I think up until the week before, I'll be doing like 110 miles a week. So... Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely part of it. If you don't let off the gas, so these shouldn't be looked at like peak performances or anything. They're you know, they, no. it's not really fair to say that you could have probably been in the sixty one, sixty twos earlier. You just weren't really targeting that. Yeah, I would like to be at the end of October um, this year. Uh, you know, and I, I can also make excuses for each individual race. Um, my last half before that Arizona one that didn't count was uh, the Philadelphia Rock and Roll last September. And out of nowhere, Philadelphia became 10 degrees hotter and 100% more humid than Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, that was it, seemed, it was like the really rainy, foggy day there, right, when it started? Or... Yeah, yep. And then uh, by the time the gun went off, the sun had broken through and it hit the asphalt and just, it was mm. like running through the swamp. <laughs> right. Well, I thought what was interesting is you're the one in... Um this past January where you ran 101, 46 or 45, Mm -hmm. that didn't come till after you had had your big Chicago marathon PR. Um, So anyways, I know you've already said that uh, none of these halves before were really targeted races. You weren't trying to peak for those or anything, but I I just thought it was interesting that usually it seems like the opposite. You'll see somebody have a breakthrough half and then then drop their marathon time. That's true. I mean, I, I totally agree. That's typically what you see. I'll also say that I feel way more comfortable in a full than a half. Um, yeah, there's just something easier about running five-minute pace as opposed to 450. Sure. Do you guys do much? I mean, I know a lot of the, something that's come up in my conversation so far is efficiency, how mm-hmm. much efficiency matters in the marathon. Do you think you're a pretty efficient runner? Um, I think I'm pretty efficient but in order to get more efficient i think i'd have to significantly change my stride because my stride right now is not very pretty and it's definitely not the best i think it works for me well but there's a chance i may have sort of maxed it out already if you know what i mean Mm. um whereas in order to really get to a, a much higher efficiency i'd probably have to change to have a form that looks more like what a lot of the top marathoners' forms looks like. Much what is it fluid. that's different about yours? Well, I heel strike really badly, oh. um, which isn't the worst thing in the world as long as you're not getting injured because of it, which, knock on wood, I have not ever had a stress fracture, which I feel like just saying that out loud, I'm, I'm cursed <laughs> now. Um, but yeah, I've never had a stress fracture, and I, it's been a while since I've had any major injuries. Um, and then, yeah, I, I tend to just sort of hunch over a lot. Um, being 6'3", I guess maybe I'm just trying to, like, draft off the people that are a bit smaller in front of me. But whenever I see race photos, I look like I'm the same height as a lot of the competitors, even though I might be a few <laughs> inches taller. Um, so there are some things like that, just, um, you know, lengthening the torso, uh, using the hips as a stable platform as opposed to having a lot of hip motion carrying you through and then uh, trying to avoid heel striking so much. Although I'll also say with the new shoes that are coming out 
and all the energy you can get back from those foams, um, heel striking might not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So what uh, does the Atlantic Track Club, um, are you guys all on the same brand or are you kind of yeah. known for shoes? Uh, what do we're you guys all wear? sponsored by Mizuno. Um, Mizuno is exclusively partnered with Atlanta Track Club. Um, we do all of our training in Mizuno's. Uh, they make some really good trainers in the, the Wave Rider and the Wave Horizon. Um, the Horizon is the stability shoe that I absolutely love. Um, I, I think it works well for me as a heel striker. Um, they don't have on the market right now a, a competitive marathon flat. Um, they have some prototypes that are pretty cool, but uh, with all the new rules, we're obviously not allowed to wear them in races. Um, and so for the past couple races, we've been wearing the uh, Nike Next Percents, gotcha. um, which is also an incredible shoe. Yeah. So you mentioned you've never had a stress fracture. And something I wanted to ask you about is on paper, it looks like you've been incredibly consistent and just continually improved since you started running half and full marathons. Mm -hmm. Is that is reality what it looks like on paper? Has it always or have there been kind of behind the scenes setbacks? Um, I'd like to think it's been a pretty steady, uh, improvement through the whole thing. Um, but you know, the one marathon I would point out that wasn't better than my previous marathon, I would say better in air quotes, because, uh, you could argue the trials was actually slower than Chicago, but adjusting for the course, I'm just as proud of both performances, but Boston 2019, um, what, what, that was a tough one. And we went out to Flagstaff for the month, month and a half beforehand. Um, and so that puts you in Flagstaff in March where it's snowy. And training, while being at altitude was nice, training wasn't ideal. Um, and then I was still trying to work remotely while being on East Coast time, uh, which meant waking up at like 5 a.m. most mornings. Um, so I could be in meetings here at 8.30 and then going for my run. Um, and so it wasn't the, the best setup. And I think that was reflected in my performance at Boston. Um, I also have to give Boston a bit of credit. That course really beats you up. And if you're not ready for it, um, you know, you pay for it over the last few miles. And I definitely paid for it. Other than that one Boston season that was not an improvement from the previous mm -hmm. marathon. Were there any huge kind of leaps between any seasons to the next, or was it just kind of, do you just look back and see one continuous thing where you stayed healthy and you stayed consistent and it's just a matter of time, you know? It's a little column A, little column B. Um, before I, I really ran a fast one in Chicago, that buildup was higher volume than I've ever done by a lot. And I remember by the end of it, doing you know five six mile doubles a week and my mileage being at like 115 120 miles a week and just being tired and I was like oh my god this is insane um and I'd never I'd never felt like that before um I'd never done more than four doubles in a week and my doubles had always been five miles so to suddenly be doing 30 miles just in sort of those little extra like tire you out afternoon miles uh was tough um and at the time i didn't realize it meant that i was training that much harder or that much better um i just realized how tired and fatigued i was um but then for the race it really showed 
And then uh, for the buildup for the trials this winter, um, you know, I, we got the mileage even higher um, and brought it up to six doubles a week. Um, and when you're running 13 times a week, uh, <laughs> it, it's exhausting. But, um, you know, uh, so it's, it's not just that I've been putting in the same amount of work for four years now and it's just building on itself. The, the work has also been getting harder. Mm. Um, and not just in the sense that I can hit the splits faster and the, the same workouts, but the workouts are getting longer and more intense and the volume's getting higher. Um, and I think uh, at this point, we're, you know, we're just trying to find like the breaking point. <laughs> right. How far can we push it before things stop working? Um, and so I'm excited to run a marathon this December. Um, that the I think they're just calling it the Marathon Project. Oh, out in, in Phoenix Arizona. or wherever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll be doing that. And um, I've never been running 110 miles a week like I am right now, more than two months out from a race. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, we're just going to keep with it and uh, hope for big things then. So you're saying usually that that level of volume doesn't come until um, closer yeah. to the marathon. Yeah, I would say uh, our marathon training cycle is usually about 16 weeks. Uh, you could call it 20 weeks because, like, there's a few weeks at the beginning that are just kind of like, you know, two weeks of rest, let's say. Um, and then uh, it's a slow buildup of mileage until, uh, you know, those... the the weeks one through eight, so to speak, um, you're just building up an intensity. And then it's really weeks eight through uh, 14 that are are high sustained intensity. And then, you know, obviously we bring it back down before the race. Um, So a minute ago you said before Chicago, which at Chicago you ran a PR of 211.10. Yep. If I have it right. You said that uh, your volume had been higher than it had ever been. And, you had got this level of fatigue or you this, uh, you know, you were doing more doubles and they were six miles instead of five and you hadn't felt that tired before. And you said it showed in the race. Yeah. Um, I had never, uh, been so tired in, in practice before. And then when the race comes along, you know, you've just spent two weeks not running that hard. Oh, so in a and, positive way. Yeah. And then, right. uh, when your legs do start to hurt, on the race course, it's like, well, this is how I lived the past six weeks of my life feeling. Right. So, uh, you know, it, it's not out of the normal. It's just, okay, so my legs are, are sore again. Let's just keep running. Right. Okay. So you're saying like the, you, the benefit of that yeah. long period of fatigue showed up in the race, not mm-hmm. like in a bad way. Um, so you were talking about your half marathons a minute ago and how, you know, you were in this 105-ish range for a long time while your marathon times were coming down. Um, but then this past January, 2020, you ran like almost a three minute half PR. And yeah. that was also about one month before the trials. So yep. what was the difference there? You think, uh, I got the flu the week before, um, before, and so before not what? The immediately before, but two weeks before, I guess, before the before half marathon, the half marathon. And so that forced me to take five <laughs> days completely off. So you like accidentally peaked I, for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a little accidental taper. My legs felt great and I ran a fast time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that yep. explains that pretty much. Yep, should have gotten a flu shot. I'll, yeah. I'll, I won't make that mistake again this year, that's for sure. 
Well, good thing you got it away, got it out of the way before the trials. You might have been a yeah. little relieved. There. Yeah, my teammate Wilkerson, he had some kind of bronchitis um, in the week beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had to get a an inhaler uh, and everything, and you know, it, I mean, an inhaler can only do so much if you've got like mild fever and cough. Um, and you know, now we joke that it was COVID because Who knows? that was yeah. right then and there, but. Uh, you know, me and two of my other teammates were living in a house with him, and no masks or anything, and none of el- none of us got it. So, right. I don't think it was something as contagious as COVID. Yeah, February is seems like a risky time to try to build up for a marathon because you got it's you got all the flu season where you're trying to do your biggest work, and and just regular cold and the mm-hmm. weather changing everything, as opposed to a fall marathon where you kind of coast through the end of summer and people aren't as sick as frequently but uh is there a particular time of year that you think is best to build up i think it actually depends where you do your training so if you live here in atlanta like me i think a fall marathon is really ideal because we just get so exhausted by the heat and then you get to go somewhere more northern than atlanta where in mid-october i think chicago or new york in early november um it's much cooler and I think the effects of that heat training are incredible. Really? Um, yeah. It, it's really something else. When uh, it's, it, You don't even maybe notice it in the race, but going up to Chicago, uh, we went like Thursday or Friday before the race on Sunday and did one little tune-up workout while we were up there. And, you know, it was like right after we'd gotten off the plane. And the first thing you notice is just like, oh, my God, like, my sweat's evaporating, I can breathe, like, this feels fantastic. Uh, whereas in Atlanta, it's just like, well, you're, the air is thick with humidity, and you know you're just going to be hot and sweaty the whole time. Do you think it's a similar stimulus of, like, coming down from altitude? I think it probably is. Um, I don't know if physiologically the effects are the same, but psychologically, it feels very similar to me. It just, you can breathe again. Um, the humidity here is god-awful sometimes. Yeah, I know. And it's like, even if you get up at 5 in the morning, you walk out, and it's like, ugh, oh, yeah. feels like a blanket's on your head. Yeah, it, it's, the humidity's worse early in the morning, but you have to do it because once the sun comes up, it's just way too hot. So back to Chicago 2019, kind of a, on paper anyways, a breakthrough performance. Um, and obviously that was a historic day for men yeah. in the U.S. I mean, what did you have, like 12 under 212 or something like that? Um, it was a lot. Were you with, it, it seemed like the bits I kind of saw of it, it was just one big pack the whole way. Is that how it that was? That is exactly how it was. Um, we packed up early on. Uh, Chicago did a good job putting um, some some talented pacers in there to help us out. And we stuck together through to about mile 20. Um, And I remember a move was made right at mile 20 where um, the the top couple Americans, uh, aside from Galen Rupp, broke away. Um, And that was was where that, you know, uh, the whole front pack was those 12 guys under 212 or whatever, but the, the people that were closer to 211, we ended up going with that move. Uh, and the people that were closer to 212 were the ones that, that stayed back there. Um, so that was sort of the, the de- decisive point. But um, it, was, it was a big pack for 20 miles. How much of an impact on you individually do you think having a pack like that makes? Oh, I love having a pack like that. Um, 
the camaraderie of it is one thing, right? If somebody misses a water bottle, usually another guy will help you out or something like that. So that helps. Uh, but it's also, it's more competitive, right? If you're out there alone, you're just racing yourself, which is difficult. But if you're surrounded by a group of guys, um, you know, you're thinking like, I want to beat the, this guy next to me. Like, he's not better than me. I've worked my ass off for this. Like, yeah. And so, you know, you either tuck him behind him or if he seems like he's slowing down, you, you whip around him and, uh, you know, there's a ton of movement throughout that pack, um, especially towards the later stages. Maybe in the beginning, we all get single file behind the pacer, but the pacer drops out, you know, halfway through. And then things bunch up and there's a lot of movement and that's when the race actually gets fun. I'm backing up to your first marathon, uh, December of 2017. Yep. Um, I am. Yeah, obviously it sounds probably another one with big packs, I assume. Yeah. It seems like that's where everybody goes. To, there's like 500 people under 220, literally, yep. or something like that. <laughs> um, what, that very first one, what were the expectations going into that? Uh, the goal for my first marathon was to get a trials qualifying time. Um, I did it. So uh, I don't know that there's much else to say. I mean, tactically, it was an awful race for me. How so? Um, I went out. I mean, it was my first marathon. I didn't know what I was doing. I went out at around 5.10 to 5.12 pace. Um, and by mile uh, 22, it was hurting really bad. And I probably finished my last couple of miles at like 5.45 pace. Um, but, you know, uh, again... I guess, looking back, I probably didn't have a choice other than to run 5.10 pace because that's what the pack was doing. Right. And running alone is the worst <laughs> the worst thing I can imagine. I did plenty running alone at Boston, and that didn't go well. Your second marathon, uh, about a year after that, was that also CIM? Yes. Okay. Yep. Obviously, you had done one before, so you kind of had the experience. But uh, do you think there was much difference in your fitness between number one and number two? Uh, there was definitely a big difference in fitness. Um, before the first marathon, the longest workout we ever did was a 10-mile tempo. Uh, and we did a lot of them. We were probably doing, like, three 10-mile efforts a week. You mean, which... like, warm up a little bit, then do a 10-mile yeah. steady pace yeah. or something? Okay. Yeah, so it would be, uh, you know, two-mile warm-up, and then you stretch, leg swings, strides, and then run for 50 minutes, about hit 10 miles, and then two-mile cool-down. Okay. Um, and so we would do that a lot. Uh, sometimes we would break it up into, like, two five-miles with, like, a minute in between or something like that. Um, but we never did anything longer than that. Now, the second time around, um, that's when, you know, we started bringing in these really long workouts, uh, like running 20 miles at a good effort and then going straight into two miles all out at the end. Um, and so trying to run like a 932 mile on absolutely like burnt out legs in trainers because we're also not putting flats on mm. for a 20 mile run. So just doing it in like a stability shoe is, is tough. And having those types of workouts in my legs, uh, I knew I would run faster than my first CIM, uh, but I didn't think I'd run as fast as I did. Um, one of the morals of <laughs> my marathon career so far is just I need to learn to listen to my coach, not in the sense of like doing the workouts he tells me to do because I'm good on that end, 
but believing him when he says, Matt, you're going to run 214 or 212 or 211 or whatever. Because um, he literally hit the nail right on the head for what my time would be hmm. uh, for that race. And I didn't believe him for a second. I was like, oh, you know, I'm more fit. I'll shave two minutes off my time, run 216.30 or something. Um, but no, he was like within like five seconds. So back to when you were talking about your doubles, um, you know, you, you sounds like you've done anywhere from like four to six days of two d- runs a day yeah. and around four to six miles or something like that. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, I can walk you through like a typical week right now. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, a typical week at the, the start of the season, um, we have two workouts Tuesday, Friday, and a long run Sunday. Um, Tuesday is intervals, Friday is a, a longer effort. And usually um, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, would have, they'd be double days. And so um, it would be uh, 12 miles in the morning, six miles in the evening. Um, and then, you know, you have your workout and another six miles in the evening. Wednesday would be medium long, so 14, maybe 15 um, and no, no evening run, thank God. And then, you know, another, another day, 12 in the a.m., 6 in the p.m., uh, workout, another 6 in the afternoon. And then Saturday is the rest day, thank God. It's only like one run, uh, usually 12 miles. And then Sunday, long run. Um, and then every couple weeks, every two to three weeks, we'll get a Saturday off, which okay. is really something special. <laughs> so back when you said you're increasing your volume during your build-up to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, like, say, instead of a five-mile afternoon run, you're doing six miles, and you're yeah. doing more of them. Was yeah. the idea there just, let's, let's just increase that fatigue volume factor? Yep. Yeah, it, my, my morning runs also went from being 10 miles every morning to 12 miles every morning. Um, and I, it is just to, to beat up your legs a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, that way, when you're running the workouts, they're a little closer to how you're going to feel in the marathon. I've really learned that training for a marathon is all about just making yourself feel crappy. <laughs> um, I mean, it has its rewarding moments when you go out and, you know, do a hard workout and you crush it and you're like, I'm, I'm fit. Um, but the overall goal is to feel bad for a while. Right. So Feel bad for a while, feel good for a really short while, yep. and then kill yourself in a race and and then a, a week or two to celebrate that yeah um so besides your specific workout days is all the other um running during the week pretty much just at whatever's comfortable easy pace yeah um coach likes to call it conversational pace yeah. uh which unfortunately half the time i'm running alone so it's not <laughs> conversational but um yeah, I am kind of like, uh, it's not OCD, but it might be right on the edge of it. I really like my runs to average under 6.30 pace. Um, and so most of my recovery runs or morning runs are usually 6.20s. Uh, I, I cut that requirement for the afternoon doubles just because <laughs> getting another six miles in at 6.30 pace is a little exhausting. Um yeah, and I know my teammates don't always love that because sometimes after a hard workout, everyone's just like, well, we'd like to just recover. 
and you know the last couple miles I see, oh, if we just run 545, we'll get the average down to 630, <laughs> and I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they don't like it, but um, I've always been that way. Even looking back at like my log from high school, um, I, it was a, just an Excel spreadsheet, and I color coded all the the days so that. A cell was green if it was 625 pace and faster. It was yellow if it was 625 to 635. And it was red if I was running slower than 635 average. <laughs> so even back then, I didn't really give myself much wiggle room. Um, That's funny that, um, well, obviously 625 pace to you in high school probably felt a lot different to you than it does now so i guess that's kind of relative yes but and no actually really because in high school i was doing what like seven eight miles a day i mean it's just not much whereas true the, right. the just fatigue of every single day running 15 miles uh it builds on you yeah well and a lot of people probably hear that and say well that's crazy but i mean 6 30 you know if you're talking about a minute and a half slower than your marathon pace roughly that's that's relatively easy right? yeah I mean, it is i mean i find it relatively easy as long as i'm not nothing to aching um right i just know that as far as recovery runs go it is a little faster compared to what a lot of other uh top marathoners are running but i also know some other top marathoners like myself that like to uh push it even right. on the so-called easy day well that's the interesting thing is to kind of hear how different people approach it and see that you can have two people finish the exact same time in a marathon. They got there two completely different ways. Totally. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I know of people that have spent the last month leading up to a marathon just completely cross-training because, I mean, it's because of injury, not by choice. But, you know, maybe they're only getting 30 miles a week in between two workouts and they're doing the equivalent of 100 miles a week in the pool. Yeah. And it works. Um, so what was the process like figuring out what worked for you in terms of fuel during a race? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like to think I've got a pretty tough stomach. Um, back in like high school and college, my pre-race food was like Pop-Tarts, which it's not the worst thing in the world, right? It's mostly just sugar, but there's definitely way better things you could be fueling with. Um, and yeah, I've always just like kind of eaten whatever and then gone for runs. My roommates have made fun of me for like eating a big dinner and then immediately going to do my double if it's getting late. And so I think my stomach's tough. Um, but actually figuring out how to fuel during a race. Um, you know, uh, when I first joined Atlanta Track Club, we used UCAN, which is a, a starch powder that doesn't really dissolve in the water, but it gets suspended and so you can drink this this cornstarch that way and it's supposed to be slower absorbing because it's not just pure sugar monomers it's it's a sugar polymer um and that worked okay but i think that's a little rougher on your stomach than some of the newer products um and so one of the ones we like to use now is martin uh which actually forms a hydrogel in your stomach to sort of slow the absorption but it's smaller sugar units so it is easier to absorb than the starch um it also tastes like cotton candy which i like uh and then another product i like to use is called tailwind and that's because it's got a little caffeine in it um and that's also just simple sugar some electrolytes and caffeine um 
And you know, it's been a real balancing act trying to figure out the exact amount of salt I need and caffeine and sugar. Um, at Boston, another one of the reasons I didn't do well was my electrolytes were way out of balance. Um, and so at that point, my fueling routine consisted of alternating between bottles of Martin and bottles of um, Power Gel. The, well, they don't make them anymore, but like the Goose or the Roctane just dissolved in water. Um, and I think that formulation just didn't have enough salt. And actually, when I got to the finish line, I was like stumbling around and I went into the, well, everybody has to go through the medical tent to finish. And I saw one of the cots and I'm like, oh, I'll just lay down. And apparently, if you lay down, that activates the whole, like, now a nurse has to come over and check on you. And I was like, oh, boy. So anyhow, I'm laying there, and she's like, okay, like, she's asking me all these questions. What's the day? I'm like, it's April 15th, and, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so I'm, I'm totally with it. She's like, okay, last thing, we're just going to stand you up and take your blood pressure. And she stands me up and puts the cuff around my arm. Uh, and, you know, they, they pump it up a lot and then let the pressure go until they can feel the pulse on the other side of the, the cuff. And she got down to, uh, uh, I believe systolic is the higher number, of 80. And usually it should be around 120 over 80. Mm. And she didn't feel a pulse yet. And she's like, we need to lay you down immediately. <laughs> and so my blood pressure was incredibly low. And she's like, you just need salt. And so they brought me over this little cup of brown liquid and mm. I had no idea what it was it was a little paper Dixie cup dark brown liquid they're like drink this and I was like what is it and she says to me don't worry it's vegan <laughs> I was like that was the least of my concerns but it turns out it was a uh, vegan uh, like chicken broth or bullion cubes and they said they put six bullion cubes in this little tiny Dixie cup of water and I downed it and asked for another one it, the salt tasted so good and then between that and uh, just a regular water bottle, minutes later, I was totally fine. Wow. Um, and so that was a learning experience to get back to the fueling thing. Uh, I now uh, add just a little bit of salt to most of the bottles, as well as I have a couple of the salt tabs usually that I'll try and run with. And if I feel like a little crampy or something, I'll try and actually take a salt pill while running. Um, that's a challenge, though. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to swallow a pill no. while running at five-minute pace. Um, my success rate's about 50%. <laughs> uh, It'd be funny to see what the other 50% looks like. Trying to, <laughs> Yeah, it's like some chewed-up pill that I've ended up spitting out at that point. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing is I like to get some caffeine, but not too much caffeine. Well, you, you might run into someone like Kramer with a cup of coffee on the side. <laughs> yeah. <you> know, like... <laughs> as long as it's not hot, I would take a nice coffee yeah. out there. Although that might turn your stomach. <laughs> but yeah, a little bit of caffeine as well. So I'll usually alternate having some caffeine in each bottle. Interesting. Yeah. So how much of this process has been pure trial and error and or versus like driven by the literature and, you know, research? Yeah. Um, my coach has done most of the research on this stuff. Uh, for me personally, it's been mostly trial and error. And I think I've sort of just come up with... Uh, a decent strategy at this point. I won't say it's optimal, but it's it's good. Um, but you know, when when Martin came to market, because uh, I don't think that existed when I did my first marathon. It's just kind of like this is the thing that like Elliot Kipchoge and everybody's using. So it seemed like I had to use it. Um, 
is it honestly better than some of the other products like Tailwind? I don't know. Um, from a price point perspective, Tailwind is a much better deal. <laughs> uh, but um, if if that's what I, if that's what the best people, the people that are breaking two hours in the marathon, are using, that's right. what I'm going to use. Yeah, right? sure. Why not? Um, so what basically what you're looking for in fuel is uh, you need some sugar, a little bit of salt, yeah. maybe some caffeine if, if sugar, you feel like electrolytes, it. Electrolytes, caffeine. Um, those are the big three, and I don't want the caffeine all the time. Hey, let me ask you this. Point. What is an electrolyte? Ah, so as a chemical engineer, I'll tell you that an electrolyte is anything that when dissolved in a solvent allows that solvent to carry an electric current. So that is the very high and uh, technical definition. Um, for, uh, from a nutritional standpoint, it is anything that uh, dissolves in water uh, to give ions, charged, charged molecules. Um, and so the big ones of physiological importance are sodium, uh, potassium, calcium, and chloride. Uh, and so when we're talking about electrolytes, generally those are the four. And sodium is the one that is most prominent in your sweat, um, as with chloride. Uh, and so sodium chloride is table salt. Um, so that's why a lot of times I just call it salt. And uh, yeah, there are some other ones. Uh, people talk about like citrate and things like that. Those are also technically electrolytes. Uh, but they don't have the same physiological uh, you know, function of helping to regulate how hydrated you are, sweating, uh, muscle contraction, nerve firing. Um, so not all electrolytes are of equal importance when you're talking about endurance training. Yeah. So from an overall diet perspective, potassium is the one you need the most of. Mm -hmm. However, since you only sweat out sodium, when it comes to running a marathon, sodium is the most important one. And then uh, sodium, calcium, and uh, potassium, they're all going to be paired up with chloride for the most part. And so you usually have no problem getting plenty of chloride. So is salt going to deliver all this stuff to you or do you need something besides salt? Uh, table salt works great. Okay. Um, there have been times in the past where I've just literally used sugar and salt. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sugar salt, dissolved in water. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, but I think um, that's not very palatable. So they have these other, you know, ones that taste better. Uh, and then it, it's good to get a little bit of cal um, uh, potassium as well. So, um, you know, Martin and the, the gels and all of them, they have uh, potassium. Yeah. It's also important to note that uh, sugar and sodium and potassium, actually, uh, they get transported from your gut into the blood at the same time. So uh, in order... Now, this isn't true for all of the sugar that you absorb, but there's a... It's called a symporter, which is a protein that imports two things at once synergistically. That's why it's a symporter. Uh, and... Sodium and sugar are one of those things. So they both get taken into the blood together. And if you don't have one, you can't get the other. Wait, so you said the protein is importing these two things at the same yeah, time. So and the, where are the proteins? The protein is on the surface of the cells that line your intestines. Okay. Yep. And so they bring it from the, your gut and the intestines into the, the cell and then pass it into the blood. Okay. Um, 
And so while you will get salt and sugar separately, if you get them both at the same time, there's a synergy that helps both of them be absorbed. Okay. And then what's the rest of the story after, after it's flowing through your blood? What's, what happens then? Yeah, so the, the sugar gets sent to a... Well, ideally in a marathon, we're only burning sugar because once you switch over to that fatty acid metabolism, things get more difficult. Um, but while you're burning sugar, uh, you know, that just gets absorbed by the mitochondria where it gets turned into ATP. Um, the, right. the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell and the ATP is the cellular currency as we were all taught in high school biology. Okay. Um, and then uh, the ATP stays within the muscle cell and is actually used to contract the muscle fibers. And where do the... And the, the sodium... Uh, gets sent to the sweat glands and excreted. Oh. Yep. So just for cooling purposes? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Oh. And then um, potassium. So you use sodium uh, to sweat, right? Uh, water will always move from uh, high concentration or low concentration to high concentration, um, right? So if you... The, the sweat glands work by concentrating sodium outside of the cell, and then the water fall, like, flows to follow that sodium. And so that's actually how the water gets pushed outside of your body while sweating. So the salt you're taking during a marathon is to, is to help you sweat. Yes. But then salt, sodium, and potassium are both heavily involved in uh, nerve firing and muscle contraction and so what ends up happening is when you do sweat out a lot of salt there's a fear that it can interfere with the the muscle firing because it's being used too much for the sweat and not exactly for the, okay now as far as the literature i've seen there's not a ton of evidence that that is the case because your body just has so much sodium in it but that is that is the fear, right? Like, it, it makes sense on a, a very simplistic level. If you're sweating out all of your sodium, there's not going to be any sodium left for your muscles to do their job. Right. Um, the reality is there's a lot of sodium in your body, and it, there's probably plenty for everything to work fine. But still, um, you know, if it makes sense on paper like that, uh, why, why not test it, you know? So you mentioned that, um, you know, ideally you're burning sugar for the marathon. Mm -hmm. um, I've always heard that you're always burning a combination of fats and sugars. It's just the ratio changes depending on the intensity. So even at higher intensities, there's still some fat being used, but maybe it's only like 5 or 10% of the calories yeah. you're burning. Is that true? I'm not an expert on that, so I don't know for certain. My guess would be... You do have a basal fat burning rate, and so you're always burning some fat. But then sugar is kind of like the, uh, you know, it's really easy to turn on and off. And so um, when you're uh, demanding a lot of your, your body, the uh, fat metabolism isn't enough to power everything, and so you just kick in some extra sugar. And then, of course, you run into problems when you run out of sugar to, uh, to facilitate that. Right. So uh, I hear this described different ways. I hear it like in terms of marathon running, like, okay, yeah, we want to be using the sugar because it's quick and your body mm -hmm. can use it quickly and um, 
that's why it's such a problem when you run out and you're trying to use fats. It just takes longer and you can't, yep. uh, you know, the energy isn't as quick or whatever. So I've heard it described in terms of like uh, a main fuel tank and a reserve fuel tank. But then that, that doesn't necessarily allow for, well, they're both happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm really curious about this because... Nate Jenkins, I've listened to a lot talk about this, and mm-hmm. his big thing is you should be able to train your body to not need, you should be able to train your body to use a higher percentage of fats at higher intensity so that you're naturally conserving the glycogen stored so you don't have to replenish it. Because I think his big point is that the math just doesn't add up when you look at the number of calories it takes to run a marathon. Mm-hmm versus how many carbs you can store and realistically ingest during a marathon. Like, yeah. I think his thing is people rely too much on the fuel and they really need to focus more on teaching their body to use fat more efficiently. What, do you, what are your thoughts on all that? So I'll say I agree with that 100%. You can definitely teach your body to use fat, right? If you just deprive it of sugar for a while, um, you're going to have to produce all the enzymes required to, to run the fatty acid metabolism chain. Um, and if you can express those at a high enough amount, uh, just by depriving yourself of sugar for a while, um, you know, you will be well equipped to burn fat more quickly than the average person. Um, and so I know people that try and do that for the marathon. Uh, I've never tried it myself. Um, but it, it, it makes sense. Uh, my uh, hesitation to trying it is because I think that you probably can absorb almost as many calories in sugar as you need to burn throughout the course of the race. Or at least you can store up plenty um, beforehand and then supplement with the fueling. Um, they say that you can maybe absorb the upper end is 80 grams of carbohydrates an hour. So over the course of a two-hour marathon, that's, uh, you know, 160 grams of carbohydrates. And at four calories per gram, that's, you know, just north of 600 calories. And then they say you can also store roughly 1,500 calories in glycogen. And so that puts you at 2,100 calories, which is right around what you would need um, as an elite runner, right? They say as a rule of thumb, it's 100 calories a mile, but... Uh, if you've been training a lot, that number comes down because you're efficient. So we're at about an hour. How are you on time? Oh, I'm good. Okay. I got a few more things on my list if, yeah. if you're good to um, keep going for a little bit. Absolutely. Um, do you have any special strategy for storing up glycogen leading, like a, the few days leading up to a marathon? Uh, personally, no. I know uh, my teammate, he does sort of a, a sugar starvation Uh, from seven days out to five days out where the idea is you deplete all of the glycogen in your body and then from you know two days out until race day you fill it back up Um, and the idea is that by absolutely burning it all out you start with better quality glycogen maybe I guess the idea is kind of like like a self-cleaning oven or something you just turn the heat up all the way and then you know, at the end of the day, uh, you're left with a, a clean oven and you can, it, it works better. Um, I've never tried that. My preference for the, the pre-race uh, diet 
he's more focusing on uh, gut health isn't the right word, but um, making sure you don't have to go to the bathroom during the race. Uh, you know, so many people end up having to stop to use a porta potty during a marathon. And so my, my pre-marathon diet involves cutting out almost all fiber mm-hmm. um, in the like four to five days leading up. Um, and then, you know, taking a, a laxative a few days beforehand. And so if you don't put anything in, nothing can come out on race day. I mean, obviously you're still getting calories, but none of the fiber stuff that builds up and ends up right. irritating your stomach or makes you want to stop and go to the porta potty. Right. So after you empty out, after that point, you're only putting the stuff in that's going to be uh, more efficient fuel. Basically. Exactly. And, uh, Interesting. Yeah, it's just it's a matter of keeping the intestines empty. Um, yeah, I just really don't want to have to poop during a race. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the night before a marathon, are you nervous about eating, even if it's not a bunch of fiber or anything, are you, are you really particular about what you eat and keeping the routine? Um, I'm not particular in the sense that, like, I need, like, rice versus pasta, uh, but I am particular in that. It's got to be some simple, like, rice or pasta or a simple carb, a, a potato without the skin, um, and a simple protein, chicken, salmon, something like that, a, a lower-fat protein. In a previous episode, I was talking to an exercise phys- physiologist at South Carolina, Dr. Mm-hmm. Russ Pate, um, who actually was a pretty good marathoner. Um, he finished seventh in Boston in 1975, but, um, he was talking about fuel and, um, during a marathon, he said something along the lines of, you know, the carbs you take in are probably benefiting your brain more than your muscles and the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to, you know, understand that a little better. Cause I mean, Throughout the day, just sitting around normal, active lifestyle, whatever, you don't burn the majority of your calories during exercise, most people, right? I mean, your brain, I don't know what part of your body, but it's just your body staying alive takes a bunch of energy. So anyways, I would like to just hear, what what kind of thoughts do you have about that? Yeah, that's a crazy one to think about. I, uh, I read about some studies that showed that some of your peak calorie burning comes when you're dreaming. <laughs> and so you're asleep, right? You'd think you're sleeping. You can't possibly be burning anything. But apparently, while dreaming and uh, rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep and everything, your brain is working very hard. And it can burn a ton of calories somehow. And I mean, I think we've all experienced after like a hard day of work where you haven't physically done much, but you've done a lot of thinking, you're tired. Um, and so there probably is some merit to the statement that uh, those calories are really helping to keep your brain happy more so than anything else. Because, um, I mean, let's face it, we're all kind of grumpy when we're hungry, right? That's the whole basis of that Snickers ad. Right. Um, <laughs> and so just just keeping yourself fueled definitely helps your, uh, your outlook during the race. Yeah, well, and I guess... Um... Because your brain is obviously uh, doing a lot of work just keeping your all your major systems running properly. So, I mean, obviously that has to happen during a marathon too. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, the muscles I'm using to 
move are not the only thing that's using energy here. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to think about what gets preference when you put sugars in yeah. at a high intensity like that, you know, cause your brain is working maybe harder than it usually is also. I would yeah, think. I mean, you might not be consciously thinking much during a marathon, but every single muscle movement is being coordinated by the brain. And so, right. you know, if you're taking thousands of strides, that's hundreds of thousands of muscles working in coordination. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about periodization, like mm-hmm. throughout a given year. Because yeah. uh, you mentioned you guys do a pretty long buildup and then a rest period. and then. But if you're focusing on a marathon... Or, or the marathon in general, is it kind of just one long marathon buildup after another with rest in between, or do you ever take seasons to focus on, you know, shorter distances yeah. or anything? Uh, it's my personal preference to just do long marathon buildup after long marathon buildup. A lot of my teammates don't agree with that. They were excited to do a track season this spring. Obviously, uh, coronavirus took that from them. Um, but I was actually planning to just uh, do a few easier road races and kind of take the spring to just do quality base mileage with longer workouts um, just so that I would be really fit going into a fall marathon training cycle. Um, and so, yeah, uh, for me personally, there hasn't been, at least for a while, a switch to a, a faster training cycle. I will say right now, because there was so much uncertainty about what was going to happen this fall, for the longest time we planned on doing Chicago, and we started a a cycle for Chicago, only to find out that it would get canceled. It should have been last weekend, actually. Um, And, uh, you know, then we found out that Hanson's was putting on this Ekaden next Wednesday, uh, followed by a half marathon the week after that. And so that was sort of like the goal for the cycle. And then, um, you know, a few weeks later, uh, the Marathon Project in Arizona uh, was created. And so this cycle's been all over the place because it started way too early for a marathon in December. um, And we have been doing some faster-paced stuff to try and compete in uh, 10K and half marathon distance um, in the next couple weeks. Uh, but generally the training is still the same for me at least. Um, so you'll, you kind of look at any normal year and say, okay, I'll do a spring marathon and a fall marathon and I'll slowly build up for each one, take some downtime to start it all over again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think as I, uh, get better, hopefully those cycles will become a bit longer. Um, as long as I can just handle, both the mental and physical aspects of running high mileage week after week for a while. I think that'll work. Um, But yeah, generally it's like, uh, you know, two weeks building from zero to like a comfortable 80 week, 80 miles a week, 16 weeks of training, um, you know, with the last two weeks of that being a little easier and run the marathon and then two weeks completely to do whatever I want and not even think about running a step. Yeah. So you don't have any interest in taking like four months and trying to run a really fast 10K or something like that? Uh, I'd, I think I'd enjoy running a fast road 10K. There's just something about the track that I don't like. Um, it's really stressful to be on a it's track. It's so stressful. Like, 
Yeah, the gun goes off, and immediately it's like, okay, well, there's... Elbows. Yeah, there's here. 20 other people here, and we all have to be single file in the next 10 meters. Whereas on the road, it's like, you know, there's 100 people here, and it's like, guess what? We've got a whole street for miles to go. Let's just spread out a little bit, and we'll get there. Yeah, um, yeah the track just has such a, a fury about it. like, And the races aren't long enough to sort it out. So if you mess up in those first laps... You're kind of, you're screwed. The marathon's a little more forgiving, um, you know, if your first mile is a little faster, a little slow, you've got plenty of time to recover. So your first half marathon was Indianapolis, the Monumental. Yep. I looked at that one, so I'm, I've never run a marathon on the road, um, mm-hmm. and I've considered training for one, and the things I'm looking at are, okay, what's a what's one that's got the features of, like, a big marathon? It feels like a big deal when you get there, but it's not, like, overwhelming logistic-wise, like a New York or something like that, and one you can actually get into. Yeah. Um, and not a crazy difficult course. Indianapolis, Twin Cities, um, Richmond, there's, like, a few on there that seem to fit that. Like, what, what did you think about Indianapolis? Uh. So I only did the half there, but I've been told to the full course is similar feel. It's very flat, um, which I think is great. Um, it's early November in Indianapolis, so it can be cold. Um, but, you know, for a marathon, 40 degrees isn't the worst thing in the world. It's only a little scarier if it gets much colder than that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there's some turns, but nothing worse than some of the other uh, major marathons. Um, as far as, like, yeah, like, a, if you want to have a good first marathon experience, um, well, one, Chicago is amazing, because you'll get the big feel, and the field is much easier to get into as compared to, like, New York or Boston, um, but it's still a major, and it feels like it. The course is totally flat. There's not a hill bigger than 10 feet on the whole thing um so it'll feel good uh but you know as far as some of the the smaller ones that still have like a big race feel and a nice course um twin cities like you said i think is a great one i've i haven't done it but i some of my teammates here at atlanta track club have um houston is a good one my teammate wilkerson uh ran that one a few years ago um you know, it's January in Texas, so I think the weather is pretty nice. Still humid, but, um, you know, it, it's not hot. Uh, and then also Grandma's mm. up in Duluth. Um, it's a point-to-point, so it's not as... Uh, you're not going to get the feel of, like, you know, looping around the city. Um, but I, everyone says that they love it, and it's just a very gradual downhill for 26 miles. And... Uh, I had some college teammates do it, and they they really liked it. So when you were coming out of undergrad, mm-hmm. I mean, you're finishing your Ph.D. in chemical engineering now, so I mean, obviously you were probably on a pretty uh, narrow professional track from <laughs> yeah. early on. Yep. Um, but, I mean, did you ever give any thought to just running full-time like trying to join a group or kind of putting off other stuff yeah coming out of undergrad i did not consider running full-time uh i honestly considered not running any time um 
I choose yeah. not to run. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I came to Atlanta to pursue my PhD. Um, I want to be a college professor. That has been the case for a while. Um, and I didn't know anybody here. And I moved here in August from New Jersey. The, the heat and humidity were like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, and yeah, I hadn't been running that summer because my college career was over and I kind of thought I was done. Um, luckily I got roped back in, uh, one of the professors here in the department, um, he was the captain of the Atlanta track club's masters team and he recruited me and, you know, hooked me up with some of the guys on the team. And, uh, we didn't really have a, a true professional team here yet. Um, we just had like the, the beginnings of it. We had just hired our coaches, Amy and Andrew Begley. Um, and so I got involved and while my heart wasn't really in it for the first couple months, so almost a year, um, eventually I saw the team grow to the point where it was going to be something pretty, uh, impressive. And then I, I wanted to be a part of it. And, um, you know, since early to mid 2016 on my heart's really been in it and it's it's been great um and now looking back i can't imagine like what would i have done with myself if i had given up running completely i would have been so boring (laughs) yeah um so we're we're sitting here october 2020 um back in february you placed 10th mm -hmm. at the olympic trials for the marathon um first of all you mentioned the weird pain in your bicep but other than that (laughs) How did that race unfold for you? Oh, man. So I knew I was in the best shape of my life before that race. And uh, the the goal was, I mean, even saying it after the fact feels silly, but the goal was to make the Olympics. Of course, why not? Um, and, you know, I knew it was a long shot. My coaches knew it was a long shot. They were honest with me. They're like, Matt, on your best day, you have a 50% chance. Like, we're just going to be honest. But... You know, there's no reason not to go try and have your best day and have a 50% chance. And uh, so I, I kind of made that this goal for me, um, which was uh, even if it wasn't going to be, you know, uh, a chance to make the Olympics, I at least wanted to be talked about on TV when it got to the part of the race where the commentators are like, okay, well, here's our front pack and we have so-and-so, so-and-so, and Matt McDonald, and they're in contention to be representing the U.S. in Tokyo. Well, you know, you could have done what that one guy did and just, like, taken off and had the lead for the first eight yeah. miles or whatever. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Uh, uh, that was Brian Schrader. He actually won that race in Arizona that was too short. Um, the one that uh, a few months before that yep. you ran? Yeah. Oh. Uh, so he was in great shape. I don't know what that race plan was. Um because based on how he ran that half marathon with me the, the six weeks beforehand, he should have been with us. Wasn't there some prize? Or am I for being... No, I'm thinking of the uh, Fifth Avenue mile where there's like a prize for being yeah. the first one to 800 or something like that. No, uh, there was no prize for that. In fact, I'm <laughs> sorely disappointed with myself. I didn't... I mean, I, I don't know if I didn't look or if I chose not to look. I thought there was only prize money for top three. I really was in the mindset... That Saturday morning of it's top three or bust. So what was it, actually? It went out to eight. Oh. And I was 10th. And, I mean, all nine of the guys in front of me are very good runners. And, I, you know, I probably didn't have any business beating them. But I'd like to think 
you know, when I had fallen back to sixth place, I was mentally like, well, it's over for me. Had I known that there were a couple of bucks in it for me still at that point, I think I would have pushed it a little harder over the last couple miles. Um, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so so you go in knowing, you know, making the team would be great, yep. but 50-50 chance on your best day, want to get on TV if there's a chance. Yeah, So and I want to be talked about. And so right. I figured at around uh, mile 16, we had just finished the second eight-mile loop, um, Galen Rupp started to pull away, and who went with him? Augustus Mayo, and uh, I think, uh, who else was there? Obdi was there as well. Um, but yeah, anyhow, I saw this group of three, it must have just been three of them. Yeah, Augustus Mayo, Galen Rupp, and Obdi. I'm like, well, there's an Olympic team. Like Those three guys could all make it. I have to go with them if I want a chance. And so at about... Um, sorry, just a second. Up until that point, had it pretty much just been a big pack? Or I know um, Brian Schrader and another guy had been up there at the front, but yeah. was there much shuffling up until that point? Uh, there was a big, a big pack through about 10 to 12 miles. And then uh, at mile 13 or 14, you start a really long climb, just a gradual climb up to Cab Ave. Um, and... That strung it out a lot. And up that climb was when we caught Brian Schrader and the, the guys that did go fast early. Oh, the other guy was uh, Dan Nestor. He went to Columbia the same year as me. At, um, and, you know, I went to Princeton, so we were kind of rivals for that reason. Um, he ended up on crutches later that night. I don't know exactly what happened, but things took a turn for the worst, I guess. Um, uh, but, yeah, so that, that hill strung it out. And so um, maybe it, it, by the top of the hill, there was only like a group of six, but a move was made, I think probably by Galen, where he was thinking there's one lap to go and I'm in amazing shape. Let's, let's go make a team. Um, and I, I figured there's the team. If you got to go with them. And so I did. Um, and I think, I don't know this for certain, but... Uh, one of my coaches, Amy Begley, she was teammates with Galen Rupp at one point, and she said, and I didn't see this, but she said that when I was up there with him, I was right behind him and really annoying him. Uh, she she said, like, I could read his face, and he was just, like, looking around, like, who is this person? What's he doing up here? And in retrospect, maybe he was right to think that, but in the moment, like, she yelled that to me or something along the course. and Like, hey, you're was, getting in his head. Yeah, that was a, a <laughs> good bit of motivation. Um, but then, yeah, at this point, we're, we're, we're at the very top of Peachtree. And we have about a mile and a half downhill. And then a 180-degree turn and come right back up it. So um, did you have to bridge a gap to get up with them? Or did you no. break with them at the same time? Uh they made the the move was made and I was there. I saw it happen and immediately joined in. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, like maybe I had to bridge like a ten meter gap or something. Okay. Because it it probably took a second for me to think. There's the the team. Let's be a part of it. Um, so yeah. So uh, I don't so, know who we left behind at that point, but probably okay. some guys that ended up catching me. Later. So you go with the move. You're getting in Galen's head. Then you get to the top of the hill, and then what happens? So we're going downhill, 
and we dropped like a 444 mile or something out of nowhere at least that's what my watch told me after the fact there's buildings and stuff i don't know how accurate it is but we dropped like a fast mile um, and i held with it i was proud of myself for that and we made the 180 degree turn and started coming back up the hill and abdi seemed to be hurting a little bit to me um and that uh, last spring i raced him in boston and while I didn't have a good race, he had a even worse race, and um, we ran together for a couple miles there until I actually passed him up a hill, and he did not catch me. Um, the trials is a different story. I, I decided, okay, like it's me and him on a hill again. I'm going to pass him again. So I passed him, and at this point, it had strung out. Galen continued those 444s or faster, um, and it was stringing out. And so I was in third going up this hill. Uh, I thought I had left Abdi behind me. He was... Uh, probably 20, 30 meters back. You said you were in third at this point? I was okay. in third. Um, and then uh, we're right in the, the heart of Midtown Atlanta. And first of all, I had a ton of friends from Atlanta and from college. Uh, we rented out a restaurant, so they were all kind of drunk. But they were so loud. And hearing them was incredible. And uh, talking to them after the fact at that point, they I mean, they were a little tipsy, but they're like, Matt, we, we thought you were going to be an Olympian at that point. And I was you like, were so on the did team I. at that point. Yeah. So did I. And then them shouting at me and all the people uh, from Atlanta who knew who I was through Atlanta Track Club were shouting. And so that burst of energy, I mean, I, I was on top of the world and I'm like, I, I'm going to make a team. Um, like, this is, this is mine. It's another six miles that's not so bad did you feel pretty good i felt good i had felt the twinge in my arm just like a few hundred meters before that but i'm like it's just one and there hasn't been another one yet i'm good the race is almost over um but then abdi uh as soon as we crested the hill and it uh it flattened out he caught back up to me um and then, yeah, then the wheels started to fall off. Uh, so I was in fourth through about mile 22 or 23. Um, and then people started passing me. And uh, by the time, like, mile 24, 25 rolled around, um, unfortunately, I just kind of stopped caring so much if people passed me. Uh, the, the adrenaline high had already <laughs> faded and... Um, I didn't know that there was still money on the table. Um, and yeah, so that, that last mile, which is right on Martin Luther King um, through downtown Atlanta, uh, it's not flat. And I let the downhills carry me. And then the uphills, I just, I mean, I didn't walk, but I slowed down a lot on those uphills um, just because I was mentally crushed. Yeah, that's really tough. Um but that's still a that's still a fun thing to remember, though. I mean that that moment mm-hmm. there that's pretty exciting. Yeah, um, and then I heard from people that were watching it out on TV that right at that moment, the president came on to address the country about coronavirus, <laughs> and so my couple minutes of fame were uh, overshadowed by what at the time seemed like it was just something that was going to pass really quickly. But in retrospect. Uh, has obviously had a huge impact and was definitely more important than the Olympic trials. But yeah. Um, so I hate to ask you this, but I'm really curious. And I know you've probably thought about this, but looking back, 
would you do anything? Do you think you should have done anything mm-hmm. differently? Um, I want to say no, right? Like, ideally, I would be able to sit here and say no. I shouldn't have done anything differently. Um, but yeah, I probably shouldn't have. Well, no, I put myself in it to go with those guys, and at the time, that was the best decision I could have made because I had no idea, and there was no way of knowing that the the couple guys that formed the chase pack behind me were going to catch back up. Just Jake Riley and who? who Jake Riley came back from out of nowhere. Oh, so he wasn't he even it. part of that chase pack you're talking um, about. Well, he, he joined up, and I think a lot of them latched onto him. I'm trying to remember who else was in it. Um, I, it's not coming to me but right, right now. Right, you're but. saying you didn't know. you For all you knew, you would have been in no man's land. Exactly. Without, and just stuck. But Yeah. You know. um, yeah, for all I knew... I, I stay back, and those three guys run away, and that's the team. Um, and so with the information I had, I made the best decision I could have made. Right. Um, it turns out that it, wasn't, it may not have been the right decision. It may have been better to, to hang back and save a little, not drop a 445 mile or something at mile 19 and try and run something more even. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't regret rain, uh, racing it the way that I did. Yeah. Um, no. Um, so at that point, though, where Abdi caught you, mm-hmm. um, and then it sounds like it was kind of just a gradual yeah. uh, deterioration from there. But do you think it was like a, a sort of like a mental gut punch when he caught you, and that just set off a chain reaction, or was you think do you think there were physical things going on, like? you know running out of fuel or thing what how do you diagnose um, that there were some physical things going on for sure uh but it probably was just more of a gut punch um he caught me on a flat and then we crested and went down a hill on the the baker highland connector which i know i'm saying all these street names and stuff nobody knows what it means but me um sounds good though <laughs> the downhill uh forces you to open up your stride a little bit right to try and just roll with the the hill and doing that hurt kind of bad um and so uh it was the one-two punch of getting past and then going to open up the stride and realizing that it's not quite uh opening up the way i'm gonna need it to um and then uh you know at the bottom of the hill there was a water or a, a fueling station and my coaches were there and they were like, Matt, like, you're going to do it. Like, this is incredible. Um, and so that was like a, a quick pick-me-up plus like some caffeine and sugar. And so I, I was back in it for, uh, you know, the climb up to the Jackson Street Bridge. Um, but then coming back down the other side of the Jackson Street Bridge, Jake Riley blew by me. And that's when I was mm. like, oh, it's over. Because <laughs> like when you're in fourth... You're thinking, well, one of those guys up there could die harder than I'm dying. Right. But then when you're in fifth and you saw a guy just power by you, that's when you start to realize it. it's over. Yeah. Do you know Jake at all? I don't. Okay. No. I don't even know if I've spoken two words to him. But... Yeah. I am curious, though, what his race was like. At what point he just started catching everybody. You know, that's, yeah. that's pretty... It would be great to talk to him about that. Um, yeah. I mean, to just finish a marathon that strong, that's something I've never come close to doing. Right. Um, so Have you to... ever 
hit the wall, like totally ran out of glycogen or, and just crashed all of a sudden during a marathon? I think in my first marathon I did that. Um, I remember, well, everyone says it's going to come between like miles 18 and 20, and it didn't. At mile 20, I still felt great, and I'm like, oh, I made it through. There's no wall. <laughs> and then like 22 or 23, it hit me, and I was like, oh, I can't run anymore. Um, and I'm not kidding when I say like my last couple miles were like almost six minute pace. Yeah. My teammate Bridget closed her last mile faster than I did. She and, and by like a significant amount. Yeah. Um, in that in that first race. Um. So you were we were talking earlier about your professional career. You're mm-hmm. you're kind of coming up to a or sort of in a transition point where your long term goal is to be in some kind of professor role. Yep. How old are you, like 27 or something? Yeah, 27. Oh, okay. Um, what do you see for, like, do you see yourself going 100% through another Olympic cycle? How, how do you look at your future of running? So I'll say before COVID started, um, and especially right after the trials, but even before then, I was thinking of trying to run full-time. Um, then COVID hit and major marathons were all canceled. And suddenly it just seemed like, well, I'm not going to actually be able to like put a roof over my head just running, right? Like I would need the prize money from some of these races just to, to pass, uh, pass by. Um, and so that kind of ruled it out for me. Uh, I'm not upset about that um, because I, I do think that... Um, I can have a successful postdoc, which would last roughly two and a half to three years, uh, and then take some time at the end of the postdoc, but before trying to transition into a professor role to focus on the, the 2024 trials for, uh, you know, six to four months, something like that, um, and then really give it everything I've got for 2024. Um, and I mean, I am only 27, right? On race day, yeah. uh, the 2024 trials, I'll be 30, um, which you could is go two more cycles. Yeah, you know, I, I could, I could, I mean, if I have the career Obvious had, I could go like four more cycles. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely intend to to be there in 2024. Um, beyond that. Uh, you know, I, I have ambitions outside of running, um, right. and I'm not going to say that running will take a back seat to them, because who knows what's going to happen, but the way I see it now, um, yeah, I'm all in for 2024, because that'll be really the best chance I've got. You said you were thinking about running full-time, kind of, I guess, I assume that means putting your academic career on hold, mm-hmm. um, or some kind of holding pattern, and was the thought press process behind that that um, there were certain things to like get that extra one percent? There's certain things you just weren't getting, like having a nap in the middle of the yeah. day or stuff yep. like that. Was that the thought process there? Yep, hit the nail right on the head. Um, I mean, I haven't taken a nap in years, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I spend a lot of my day if I'm not on my feet in the lab. Uh, I'm sitting in front of a computer, and both of those things aren't ideal for uh, keeping loose and recovering. 
Um, and yeah, it, it would mostly just be sleeping more and uh, having more time to do the extra things. Like, uh, I mean, it's not that I don't stretch and foam roll, but I don't stretch and foam roll enough. Um, and uh, yeah, just being able to get all the physical therapy I need. Because um, I, I, I mean, I work at least 40 hours a week most weeks. Um, and I know people will say, oh, well, it, it's grad school. It's not really work. But I haven't taken a class since 2017. <laughs> um, it's all research full time. Um, and so I, I really treat it like a job. Yeah, and it's not like some kind of mindless job. You can just kind of clock in, sit at your desk, and sort of zone out for a few hours. I mean, it sounds like pretty mentally yeah. demanding work. There are days that I do kind of clock in and zone out, but you're only digging yourself in a hole when you do that because um, if you don't do the work, no one else is going to step right. in and do it for you. Um, so yeah, it, it can be kind of demanding. Um, but I, I, I actually do really like what I do. Uh, you know, I it wasn't so much that I would want to give up work to be able to run full-time if I could support myself running full-time. It really was a question of, um, am I willing to give up the work? Because I, I like the, the science aspects of it. I like, I mean, discovering new things and figuring things out in the lab and just kind of tinkering sometimes and doing the modeling work that I do. Um, computer modeling, not, not fashion modeling, obviously. <laughs> um, but then uh, when, when COVID happened and it became more clear that not only would I be giving up that work that I enjoy, but that I would also be financially hurting a little bit to do so, that made the decision way easier. Yeah. Have you ever considered that having a full-time job outside of running could potentially actually be better for your running? I have thought about that because um, it keeps you busy uh, and, you know, it forces you to form good habits um, and be kind of ritualistic about things. Um, I know from experience if I weren't working, like I'd start sleeping in and, uh, I mean, during the summer in Atlanta, that's not an option, mm -hmm. right? You have to be up and at it before the sun. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad that it, it keeps me out the door by, you know, 7, 7.30 every morning to get my run in. Um, and, you know, it, it forces me to think a little bit more about what I'm going to be eating because, you know, I have to pack lunch a lot of, a lot of times. Um, and so there, there are benefits to it, but it is also exhausting. Yeah, I've kind of imagined, you know, being a professional runner where literally you have some kind of contract that, you know, you're literally paid a salary to run and recover and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I've thought, wow, that would be awesome. But then on the other hand, I think, man, that seems like you could really, you could really get inside your own head and you may, it seems like there's a potential yeah. to have almost too much downtime and have a negative effect. Yeah, on the one hand, I don't know how I would fill my days. Right. I guess I would start reading books. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, um, yeah, if running is the only way, the only thing you have to define yourself, and God forbid you get hurt or the training's not going well, all of a sudden, at least in my experience, your outlook on on all of life just becomes 
way darker mm. uh, just because this one aspect isn't going well. So if you, if you have other things going on, and it doesn't have to be a job, but uh, if you have other things going on in your life that you take pride in, um, I think that really helps to balance it out. Uh, if the running's not going well, at least you can say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing good things at work or I'm, I'm making discoveries in the lab or, um, you know, a lot of people choose to have a family, which I'm sure one day that'll be in the cards for me, but other things have to get done first. And so, you know, a lot of people focus on these other aspects of life. Um, right. But when you're just, when running is the one thing that defines you, um, I think it can really, like, eat away at your uh, your mental health. Yeah. I've wondered about elite runners and people who are competing for Olympic teams and prize money and that kind of thing. When they get towards the end of their, you know, peak years, whenever that is, that mm-hmm. could be like 30 or 40, you know, who knows. Yep. But when that time inevitably comes, you know, do you see yourself just never running at all? Or do you, I guess in other words, do you see in the future some kind of defined endpoint like oh that was the last cycle it's over and i'm hanging it up or kind of like a gradual you know what i'm i'm not in contention for a olympic team here but i still want to be competitive maybe on a on a smaller scale or something how do you see that tail end of your career um the what i've always thought and maybe i was too young to ever even think this way but uh as soon as it seems like i don't have a pr left in me that's when it's time to hang it up. And that doesn't mean like the training is always getting better, but like as soon as it feels like I don't have the drive or the ability to do the training to get another PR, I think that's when I'll be done. But as long as, you know, I look out and I see faster times on the horizon, let's keep with it. All right, we'll start wrapping up here. I got a couple more questions that Mm -hmm. I want to get your thoughts on. Um, First of all, you mentioned during the trials, you know, you kind of had your moment where you were being talked about. You were maybe in the shot of the camera a few Mm -hmm. times. Um, After the trials, did any kind of opportunities sort of present themselves to you, like contracts or group invitations or anything like that? Um, So I'm actually still signed with Atlanta Track Club through the end of the year. Um, And part of my contract forbids uh negotiating outside groups so i wasn't able to do that um i'm actually sort of entering into contract renegotiation that period now uh, the contract uh, negotiation period just opened up but um you know while i'd like to think my performance at the trials would warrant uh being talked to the next like two weeks later you know march madness was canceled Mm, Um, there was right (laughs) There was very little time between the trials and the the shutdown of our country, um, and so uh, those those opportunities may have been squandered by COVID. Yeah. But uh, you know, new opportunities. I'm you sure were still talked rise. about, though. I was talked about, and um, you know, I, I've got a race coming up in December. What's the October half you said you're doing? So Hanson's is putting on this Ekaden on the 21st, and then a half marathon on the 28th. Ekaden um, is that so a... an Ekaden is a Japanese style relay race. Um, this one is mixed gender, so there will be three men and three women, and there's uh, so six legs total. There's two 10k legs, two 5k legs, and two 6k legs. 
and a man and a woman will run one of each of them. Um, and you actually you wear this sash called the Tsuki, uh, and you actually have to hand it off. Um, and I'm the opening 10K leg for our team, Atlanta Track Club. So the Tsuki will only be covered in my sweat when I hand it off to my teammate. Um, but I've actually run an Ekaden in Japan a few years ago. And that one was not mixed gender. It was uh, all men. Um, and uh, it was all different lengths. But generally, the legs add up to a marathon. Um, and there's six legs. And so uh, in that one, I had a 10.2K leg at the very end. And, uh, you know, my teammate ran up to me and passed the Tasuki, And it was just disgusting and covered in everybody's sweat. And I had to put this sash over me and then go run a 10 plus K. Um, it was actually a great experience and I, I loved that trip. Uh, but yeah, that's, we'll be doing something similar to that a week from today. Cool. Um, how do you look at goals? Um, I mean, when you're training, do you work off of goal pace to, to calibrate your workouts or is it mm-hmm. more geared towards like perceived effort? In my mind, it's all geared towards perceived effort, but our coach gives us goal times for all the workouts that are based off what he thinks we're going to run in the the marathon at the end of the cycle. Right. Um, and so, while it feels like effort to me, there's also you know the psychosis that every long distance runner has that makes them like need to hit their splits exactly spot on. Um, <laughs> And so the the paces end up being at uh, calibrated around goal marathon pace. Okay. Um, yeah. So before every marathon, you pretty much have a a pretty specific uh, firm end time as a goal for the yeah. race. Uh, you know, I've never thought about it that way because I've never set that goal pace. It's always been my coach. Right. Um, and in my head, I've always got into the marathon and thought, oh, I can't run that fast. And every time he's like, you're going to run this this time. And I never believe in it, and then I always do. Um, and so, yeah, I guess we do have sort of from week one a, a goal time uh, already written out. Do you like that? Uh, I do. Um, I would say I prefer races, though, where you're racing the people, not the clock. Right. Um, and so, in that sense, the goal time is moot. Yeah. Uh, but no, for like this December marathon, um, it's a time trial course, perfectly flat. The weather should be incredible in Arizona. Uh, you know, that's one where the time matters more than the people. Yeah, it seems like that's kind of shaping up to be like a miniature rematch of the trials. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, based on what I've heard so far it seems like they've gotten a lot of the top 25 guys from the trials to come do it um which is exciting uh yeah i mean it part of it's because they have to keep the field size small but they basically uh, i I think they just extended invitations to everyone in the top 25 and a lot of the guys said that they'll be there yeah well um thanks again for talking to me taking time right after your double here on the Wednesday yep. night. But yeah, I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for uh, what happens at this marathon project. Maybe catch up again sometime down the road. For sure. Sounds like fun. <laughs>